HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2020. Cheers. A man walks into a bar. That's actually how this story starts. No joke. A man walks into a bar because he's got to pee. And the story could have ended there, too, just as easily, because, let's be honest, those guys always say they're going to stay and buy something, but they don't mean it. Except that when this guy comes out again, the bartender, he's got this row of chilled glasses, like eight or nine of them just lined up on the bar. And the guy's intrigued. He stops to watch what's going on. And the bartender, he's mixing up something in these two shaker tins. The guy isn't sure what it is, but the bartender's tossing it back and forth through thin air from one hand to the other like a juggler before... fills up every last glass on the bar in one fell swoop without a single drop left over. And the guy, he's just transfixed. He leans over the bar and asks the bartender, hey, what is that? And when the bartender tells him, he orders one. And when he tastes it, he says, yeah, it's good, but here's how to do it better. The bartender was named Constante. The guy was Ernest Hemingway. And the drink was a daiquiri. I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show where we talk about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Today we're looking at the daiquiri, and you might remember from the last time we touched on this delightfully spartan combination of rum and sugar and lime that we painted this whole extended metaphor about balance, about the importance of not taking any one element of your drink or your life too far in any one direction. Well, this time we're going to do exactly that, and look at a drink that is famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, for being incredibly dry and outrageously boozy. It's a drink that's mired in controversy. And that controversy has its roots in the clashing personalities of the two men responsible for it. One of them gave it a recipe. The other one gave it a name. 
I was drinking another of the frozen daiquiris with no sugar in it. As I lifted it, heavy and the glass frost-rimmed, I looked at the clear part below the frappéed top, and it reminded me of the sea. And that second man really needs no introduction. So let's skip past the war and the bullfighting and the jazz age and land in Key West in 1932. Hemingway was living there with his second wife, Pauline, and his fame was starting to get the better of him. He got tired of the friends and the acquaintances and the looky-loos that constantly interrupted his work by popping in unannounced, so he packed his bag one day and bought a ferry ticket to Havana. The Cuban capital in the twilight years of American Prohibition was exactly Hemingway's kind of place. There was swimming, fishing, sailing, sports, cars, gambling, women, and of course, bars. In the mornings, he would write. And in the afternoon, when the heat crept in and his fifth-floor hotel room became unbearable, he would wander the streets of Havana, looking for a drink. And then one day, he blew into Bar La Florida, or El Floridita as it was better known, on Abisbo Street. And he stayed, off and on, for the next 20 years. In the novel Islands in the Stream, his main character strolls in right around opening and takes up his usual position at the far end of the bar. The guy's name in the book is Thomas Hudson, but it's really no secret that it's supposed to be Ernest Hemingway because, let's be real here, it's always him. I took my seat on a tall bar stool at the extreme left of the bar. My back was against the wall toward the street, and my left was covered by the wall behind the bar. I ordered a double frozen daiquiri with no sugar and started to read. It was in that bar, in that seat, that Hemingway discovered a drink he'd go on to make famous. Or infamous, I guess, depending on how you look at it. And he encountered something else, too. The master behind the craft, Constantino Ribelagua Vert. Well, he was known as El Rey de Cotoleros, the cocktail king, uh, and he was celebrated for making, you know, I don't know how many millions of daiquiris in his career. Jeff Berry, a.k.a. Beach Bum Berry, is the owner of Latitude 29 in New Orleans and the author of Potions of the Caribbean and Sippin' Safari, which is to say he knows a lot about rum and the people who mix it. A writer talking to another writer, they have a certain understanding of what the craft is, but a writer looking at a, a writer who can't make a cocktail to save his or her life, looking at Constantia making a drink is going to be impressed because they don't have that knowledge. Um, that you would have as a bartender looking at him. You could look at him working. You could go, okay, yeah, I, I get it. I, I mean, yeah, he's great, but one day I could be him. You know, I, I get the fundamentals. But for somebody who doesn't make drinks at home or doesn't make drinks for a living, to look at someone like that or to look at Don Lee or, you know, people of that ilk, it's, it's like alchemy. You know, it's mystifying. The son of a fisherman from Barcelona, Constante began working at El Floridita as a waiter in 1904. Fourteen years later... He was an owner of the bar. The current wisdom goes that buying his piece of the bar where he'd honed his craft put him deep in the red, forcing him to work double seven days a week to pay off his debts. And while that may be true from a purely financial perspective, there was more to it than that. He loved his job. And as anybody who's ever loved a bar job knows, there are days when you come into work and freak out just a little bit because someone put the ginger syrup back in a slightly different spot. And the solution, albeit one that's a little too extreme for most of us to take, is just to work every single shift that there is. Dawn till dusk, working, 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 um, refining, refining, refining. Also, not just coming up with drinks and managing the bar, but being behind the bar and serving drinks to people. 
You could call the man a workaholic, but that'd be a huge disservice to the dedication and the passion that he brought to his bar, his craft, and his guests. And besides, it wouldn't even scratch the surface. By all accounts, the man only had one hobby, tending his private grove of lime trees, which of course he did to make sure the balance of acid and bitterness in his drinks was exactly where he wanted it to be. In addition to his daily double shifts, Constante developed four different kinds of ice, cracked, chipped, shaved, and snowy, and five different mixing techniques, which he combined and recombined through years of refinement to make sure the consistency of every drink he served was exactly perfectly where he wanted it to be. One such style involved throwing a drink between two mixing glasses, the distance between them getting wider and wider every time until finally the last toss was as far apart as he could humanly manage. It earned him a fair share of admiration from the baseball writers and the managers who frequented El Floridita and marveled at his seamless marriage between technique and showmanship. And he was celebrated as just a precision craftsman, the same way that people worship ball players. He was compared to uh, baseball pitchers by quite a few reporters. Uh, sports reporters wrote about him, in addition to you know his travel writers, who would also be the people who would write about him. For someone who did not have an outgoing personality, he seems to have developed a cult following, which is kind of interesting. And we haven't even gotten to his drinks yet. According to a 1935 souvenir booklet from El Floridita, Constante had 150 specialty cocktails he could prepare for his guests, like the Ideal Cocktail, a surprisingly rum-free and surprisingly delicious blend of gin, grapefruit, maraschino, and sweet and dry vermouth. It's clear, reading the book, that Constante was an artist, and his favorite subject was the daiquiri. He had four of them, and they were numbered, not named. The first one is a classic, tossed back and forth from hand to hand for a little extra je ne sais quoi. Number two added orange and curacao for a zesty spin on the original, and number four was a blend of lime, rum, and sugar with a hint of maraschino, whipped up in an electric blender. It's delicious, and it's cutting edge, and even by themselves, these three recipes would be enough to cement Constante's crown as El Rey de Cotaleros. But the daiquiri number three is his true masterpiece. Take two ounces white Cuban rum, a tablespoon of white sugar, a teaspoon of grapefruit juice, a teaspoon of maraschino, and the juice of half a lime, hand-squeezed. Dissolve the sugar in lime, then shake all of the above with one and a half cups snow ice. Strain over more snow ice heaped into a mound in a frosted glass. When El Rey made them, the consistency was neither snow cone crunchy nor McFlurry thick. It was, as one eyewitness described it, piled up like applesauce, a frosty mountain of boozy snow that carefully balanced all of its disparate elements into the perfect antidote for a humid Havana afternoon. This was the drink that Hemingway fell in love with. He loved Constante's technique and his carefully honed approach to Cuban rum. He loved them so much, in fact, that he changed them. You know, he becomes a, a big fan of, of the daiquiri, so much so that a, a drink called the E. Henmaway, so it's misspelled, H-E-N-M-I-W-A-Y, the E. Henmaway special appears in the 1937 Floridita cocktail book, and it's basically the, the daiquiri number three, but without sugar. Philip Green is the author of To Have and Have Another and A Drinkable Feast. And if that wasn't already a tip-off, he's done a lot of great writing about Hemingway, the author, 
and Hemingway, The Drinker. At some point, probably around 1941-42, and he's now living in Havana, I guess he got tired of ordering these drinks that he can knock back in, in two minutes, he, so he asked them to be doubled. And the amount of grapefruit juice increased a little bit. But uh, So that becomes the Papa Doble, you know, the, the double-sized frozen sugarless daiquiri and named in honor of his nickname, Papa. It bears pointing out that Hemingway was, by all accounts, a model regular. He was polite, he was a good tipper, and he could hold his liquor like a goddamn champion. And while he eventually settled down with the daiquiri number three, the number four was the Constante creation that initially caught his eye. In fact, Hemingway approached La Florida's daiquiris pretty much the same way he approached his wives. He had a hard time choosing, and there were four of them. So, the first time he took a nice cool sip of a number four, he said, yeah, it was good, but it'd be even better with none of the sugar and double the rum. Constante's daiquiri number four is a brilliant little piece of work, one of the first drinks ever to make use of what's now a known fundamental truth of bartending. That an electric blender can whip up a shaker full of sugar, citrus, spirit, and ice into a perfectly refreshing slush much faster than any human hands ever could. But Hemingway liked his drinks dry and strong, so that's what he ordered instead. When it came to cocktails, he never cared much for sugary drinks since diabetes ran in his family, and he was terrified of contracting the disease that eventually drove his father to suicide. And he liked a lot of rum in his drinks because, well, he was an alcoholic. And alcoholics like a lot of rum. So, while Constante's specs for the daiquiri number four read like this... Take two ounces white Cuban rum, a half ounce fresh lime juice, hand-squeezed, one teaspoon maraschino liqueur, one teaspoon white sugar, and one and a half cups crushed ice. Dissolve sugar in lime, then place with all of the above in an electric blender. Blend on high speed for at least 20 seconds or until frappéed. Pour unstrained into a chilled cocktail glass, carefully piling up the frappéed mixture as you go. Hemingway's drink of choice looked a little bit more like this. Take four ounces white rum, a half ounce of fresh lime juice, a teaspoon of maraschino liqueur, and place all of the above in a blender. Blend on high and pour unstrained into a chilled cocktail glass. No sugar. No After the number four, Hemingway turned his sights on its predecessor, which he asked Constante to make with double the rum, double the lime, three times the grapefruit, and none of the sugar. The resulting drink is different from what came before it. Take four ounces white Cuban rum, an ounce of fresh lime juice, a teaspoon of maraschino liqueur, a tablespoon of grapefruit juice and no sugar, and one and a half cups of snow ice. Then shake all of the above, and strain over more snow ice heaped into a mound in a frosted glass. This was the drink that would later come to be known as the Papa Doble. And here's where the history of the drink gets complicated. Because Hemingway wrote about El Floridita so much, the bar and its drinks quickly became famous. And because he put his personal brand, along with his freaking name, on the Papa Doble, that was the drink that got the most press. And because everyone wanted to drink like Ernest Hemingway, and he made real sure that 
everyone wanted to drink like Ernest Hemingway, his version of the Daiquiri Number no. 3 was the one that everybody ordered. And while all that publicity brought in the hordes of tourists and reporters that Constante always deserved, a big chunk of those newcomers came in specifically to try the famous Papa Doble. And that was a problem because, well... The Hemingway daiquiri, as made by Hemingway, or as instructed to make by Hemingway, is a terrible drink. It's true. Try mixing one at home and you'll see. It is too tart, it's way too hot, the monkeying with the ingredients throws the mixing process all out of whack, and you're left with something that tastes like it came out of a dirty blender at a frat house instead of the practiced hands of an expert. You know, so this is good, but um, it'd be even better if you left out the sugar and doubled the rum. Uh, which is a horrible fucking drink. It's just horrible. <laughs> yeah. He's just turned it into like this this um, limeade without the aid, you know. And um, but Constante did what his guest wanted, and that's the way Hemingway drank them. Now, loudly and for the record, Phil Green disagrees with us on this one. Where Peachbum and I see an almost unconscionable breach of artistic etiquette, Phil sees a few reasonable tweaks to serve the particular needs of a particular guest. My view has always been that it was almost like walking into a, a shop and you buy something off the rack, but you have the you have it tailored a, a little bit. He, you know, he basically took the number three off the rack and said, "Just make it without sugar." So I think it was just a matter of, I'd like the uh, fried chicken dinner, but hold the French fries. I'd like coleslaw instead. Taking into account that that is a valid argument, and taking into account that all bartenders must bow before the all-powerful subjective nature of taste, there's still something about Papa's modifications to the number three that just irks me. And according to Beach Bum, it probably irked Constante even more. I can't help but think, as a bar owner and also as a writer, that he must have, I mean, this is, again, conjecture on my part, but I think he had to resent Hemingway. On the one hand, Hemingway made his bar famous, um, and Hemingway made him financially successful because people would swarm that bar looking for Hemingway, and very often they found him. He was there. But as a corollary, Hemingway walks into your bar, your bar becomes famous, you know, uh, everybody's go going there looking for him. Writers are going there looking for him and writing about you and writing about your bar. And all of a sudden, you've got a thriving concern, and it's all because of this one guy. Um, are you going to ever let this guy know how you really feel about him? Um, if you do resent him for that time that he messed up your drink, and now you have to serve this shitty drink to all these people coming and asking for a Papa Doble, you know, because it's been written about so many times, um, and you can't serve it any other way because Hemingway's right there watching you make them, <laughs> you, know, you, can't, you can't serve these people who have never been to your bar a proper Jackery number three because Hemingway is right there watching you make that drink. Here's the thing about Constante. He was a consummate host, but he was also tight-lipped, introverted. He hated parties, and even though he was himself a master bartender, he almost never drank. There's this great postcard from El Floridita in the 1930s with a picture of two guys and a lady that are just having the swellest time. They're young, they're sexy, they're drinking, they're laughing, they're leaning casually on the bar like they don't have a care in the world. And in the background, just over the lady's shoulder, is Constante looking unbearably uncomfortable. And you realize, watching him try and look, I guess, natural, that he loved his guests but he probably didn't care for people all that much. He liked his bar. He liked his lime trees. He liked the quiet dignity of an honest day's work, and he loved his drinks. 
Uh, how could he not after a lifetime of crafting them to perfection? But then how would he feel about the guy who came into his bar and mucked all of that up? Constante is, again, sheer conjecture. He's, he's been put into this spot, um, which, damn, I mean, geez, my bar's famous. I have to keep making this crappy drink in order to keep uh, the guy who made the bar famous happy. Um, do I like this guy? Um, I don't know. As a business owner and a bartender, Constante was a perfectionist. It's just about the only thing that he had in common with his most famous regular. Both could spend days, weeks of their lives, sanding and honing and crafting every last detail of whatever they were working on until it was exactly to their liking. But that's where the similarities begin and end. Where Constante was quiet, Hemingway was loud. Where Constante was reserved, Hemingway was brash. And while Constante seemed content shaping his own little corner of the world exactly how he liked it, Hemingway was a caricature of a man's man. He was a lover, a fighter, a hunter, a fisher, a eater, a drinker, a world traveler, and a domineering alpha male about whom the only things small were his word counts. He lived life to the absolute fullest, and it was both his best and his worst quality. Which is probably why he had to meddle where he didn't belong. It wasn't just health concerns or the creeping tentacles of Hemingway's addiction. It was his constant need to be the dominant force in every room he ever entered. I think it had to do more with ego than anything else. I mean, I think he had to put his stamp on it. He had to put his fingers on the drink that he was going to drink in his favorite bar, uh, in his local. And it, as a very dominant alpha male in any situation he was in, um, he needed to assert his dominance and that's I think that's how he did it at the Florida was say okay I'm going to take your drinks which everybody else loves just the way they are and I'm going to I'm going to have you make them my way it's tough to say exactly what the consequences of Hemingway's meddling were but the daiquiri like most cocktails was headed for rough waters that's coming up after this I say this a lot, and if you listen to me on the radio, you're probably sick of hearing it by now, but here goes one more time. If you're in this business, you should never stop learning. Because seriously, why would you? There's so much to learn, and trust me, anybody who says that they know everything about anything, they're trying to sell you something. And that something, it probably sucks. On the other hand, my favorite bartenders will always be the curious ones, the ones who constantly want to try new things and new techniques, who are never content to just rest on the laurels of what they know. They're always building, they're always hustling, they always have something new to tell me whenever I post up at their bar. And those are the bars that everybody wants to drink at. If you want to be one of those bartenders, and come on, why wouldn't you? Diageo Bar Academy has you covered. It doesn't matter if you're a novice or a veteran, if you just got off your first bar backing gig or you've been running bars for 20 years, they have something for you. With classes on batched cocktails, mindful drinking, seasonal serves, flavor trends, and more, I guarantee there is something on there that you didn't already know. Don't believe me? Check it out. The whole thing's free. That's right. Totally, 100% free. So stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Don't wait. Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. 
That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's, again, totally free, and you will be amazed by everything they have to offer. One more time, it's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Cheers. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat, and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, It's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. Listeners, I want to tell you about some mighty fine spirits that are coming out of the state of Texas. I discovered them at a Tales of the Cocktail tasting room two years ago, and you know that I wouldn't be here telling you about them if I didn't think they were worth telling about. Violet Crown Spirits are the first people ever to produce absinthe in the Lone Star State, which would be impressive in and of itself, but it's doubly so because they're making two of them. Their classic emerald absinthe layers fresh-cut hay and meadow-sweet notes over a rich foundation of black licorice, and their opal absinthe is a bright and fascinating addition to any bar. And don't sleep on their jasmine and elderflower liqueurs or the midnight marigold tomorrow either. Trust me. To learn more and find out where they're near you, visit violetcrownspirits.com and tell them that I sent you. Cheers. We've talked a lot on the show about how bad cocktails had it in the 1970s and 80s, but the daiquiri arguably had it the worst. Where it was once the domain of artists like Constante, the daiquiri became the province of the frozen drink machine, and it's a stink it still can't quite wash off to this day. It's telling that the New Orleans daiquiri chain had 41 company-owned bars spread out across the South before 2005. And it's telling that they sell their trademarked blender packs for other establishments to make in other blenders. But you really only need to look at the number of talks and chapters and conversations about the daiquiri that begin with some variant on the joke that it used to come in only two flavors, strawberry and banana, to see exactly how far the daiquiri fell. Bar La Florida didn't fare much better. Despite his myriad health problems, both mental and physical, Hemingway actually outlived Constante by a full nine years. 
A few years after El Rey died in 1952, the Floridita was named one of the three best bars in the world by Esquire magazine. Those other two, by the way, also Hemingway haunts. The new owners made the curious choice to remodel the bar in a style they thought befitting of their current status. And the results looked like what would happen if you asked someone to draw a fancy restaurant after they'd only been to Applebee's for their entire life. It seemed calculated to perfectly bury their earlier success. Gone were the carefree days that Hemingway once described downing daiquiris with friends and admirers and enemies at his favorite corner of the bar, staying on his feet the entire time so he could drink double after double after double, up to 15 in one sitting. And all the while, with his favorite barman behind the stick, guiding his way. I had drunk double frozen daiquiris, the great ones that Constante made that had no taste of alcohol and felt, as you drank them, the way downhill glacier skiing feels running through the powder and snow, and after the sixth and eighth, felt like downhill glacier skiing feels when you are running unroped. Ernest was getting a little long in the tooth himself. He had arrived in Cuba in his early 30s as a young man, the young, sexy, bullfighting Hemingway of The Sun Also Rises. And he left in 1960 as Papa, the paunchy, bearded elder statesman that could often be unpleasant and was rarely sober. Despite that apocryphal quote that everybody knows about writing drunk and editing sober, he still rarely drank while he worked. He just made up for it afterward. But drinking comes in after, after the writing. It's a way of recharging your batteries and putting your mind on a different plane. And you can subconscious, you let your subconscious work on the novel that you're writing or the short story that you're writing. And then tomorrow you sort of are refreshed and you can get back to writing. And your mind has been working on the, the writing or the story, you know, while you were enjoying the, the drinks. Yeah, I mean, he he became known as, as, a, as a big drinker and... You know, it, it, I'm sure it took years off his life. It was one of those things, like the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know, my candle burns at both ends. It will not last the light, but to my friends and to my foes, it gives a lovely light. You know, it's like, yes, I'm paying a price for this creativity. Meanwhile, Constante's influence on his bar and on Cuban bar culture was starting to fade away. El Rey de Cotaleros was great at a lot of things, but self-promotion was never one of them. A few times during his life, La Florida published souvenir bar booklets with recipes from the bar. And they read exactly the way you would expect from a book by Constantino. Jam-packed with specs and information, but without a lot of flash. They were fun keepsakes, for sure, but they were tiny and flimsy, and they were never going to make it onto the New York Times bestseller list. Besides, the bilingual booklets had a habit of butchering the English translations, which led to a lot of dropped or swapped ingredients and a few amusing typos like the E. Henmaway Special, which is a lightly modified version of the Papa Doble with a lot less citrus and a little less rum. There are still a number of these Floridita booklets kicking around, mostly in the possession of writers and historians and various other nerds who are into that sort of thing, like me. And it's good that there are because, really... That's all the writing of Constantes that we've got. Unlike Hemingway, who put pen on paper compulsively, Constante seemingly never wrote anything down that wasn't a cocktail recipe. No book deals, no interviews, nothing. Even any letters or journals or diaries he may have written at some point were likely swallowed up by the political strife that consumed Spain and Cuba at the end of the 20th century. 
They may be small and dry and badly translated, but those Floridita booklets are the only part of Constante's voice that we have left. The E. Henmiway special. <laughs> Dos onzas ron cubano, una cucharadita jugo de toronja, una cucharadita marrasquino, jugo de un medio limón verde, hielo frappé, batido y sírvase frappé. The one thing that Constante was not was a hustler or a self-promoter. Um, he would not have done that well in the age of social media. I don't think he would have had a Facebook account or he would have never taken a <laughs> selfie in his life. <laughs> so. It's easy to see how Constante's work could have gotten lost in a world increasingly obsessed with the quick and the flashy and with ourselves. But thanks to some fairly improbable and maybe even ironic luck, it didn't. As the cocktail revolution of the early 2000s was picking up steam, it began scooping up mangled cocktails from the triage wards of history and nursing them back to health. The daiquiri was lucky enough to be one of the first, and it wasn't long before this simple combination of lime and sugar and rum was the poster child of a burgeoning movement. In the space of just a few years, this drink went from slurpy machines on Bourbon Street to gangster daiquiri time at Death & Company, the secret handshake for all those cool and hip and in the know. And so, of course, it was inevitable that the curious and the geeky started looking into the Hemingway daiquiri, too. Bartenders were fixing it, tinkering with it, resurrecting it. A lot of people talked about undoing the damage Hemingway did to this drink, like they're pulling up a layer of purple shag carpet that some idiot slapped down over hardwood floors. And while they're not wrong, it's interesting to note that very few of these people make the drink exactly to Constante's specifications even though detailed instructions are one of the only things that he did leave behind. Now, most Hemingway daiquiris today are themselves updates on what came before, a synthesis of the man who made it, the man who named it, and modern sensibilities. When people started to make that drink again, and they weren't making it the way Hemingway made it. They weren't leaving out the sugar. They were putting it back in. Like, I think the first person to print a, a reconstituted Hemingway daiquiri and rebalance it to his own taste was Dale DeGroff. But he restored the maraschino to its proper you know, amount and he restored the sugar and he balanced it out. And Dale is another person who does not think Hemingway was much of a mixologist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, and then, and then of course, you know, it sort of like took off and everybody had to have a Hemingway daiquiri on the menu. And I think, you know, that, that combination, which is entirely Constante's combination of uh, grapefruit juice, maraschino, rum, and lime, is, is awesome, and it's flexible, and you can bend it, mess around with it, and respec it, and it's still going to work. Um, and because that drink is so durable and elastic, it's, it's become the classic it is today. But most people don't make it the way Constante even made it. Constante made a frozen drink. It was a frozen drink piled up high in the glass. Here's another thought. How likely is it, as delicious as it is, as amazingly balanced and well-crafted as it may be, that a drink called the Daiquiri Number no. 3 gets a new lease on life after decades of obscurity? I know it's good, but I have a hard time seeing a numbered drink making a comeback half a century later. And yes, I see you, Corpse Reviver Number no. 2, but the other half of your name references the living dead, so it doesn't count. It's worth considering that this drink survived, that it's thriving today, because in 1932, an egomaniac got his hands on the recipe, peed all over it, and then named it after himself. 
it became famous because it's called the Hemingway Daiquiri. If it was called the Daiquiri Number Three, I don't think it would be on any menus across the country the way it is now. Yeah. But uh, but because of the, that magic name Hemingway, which is a marketing bonanza to this day, um, you know, you stick the name Hemingway on a pair of uh, you know, Dockers pants or on a on a rum bottle or um, you know sunglasses, and it's going to sell. And um, I think it's the same with that drink. That drink is famous because it's called the Hemingway Daiquiri. It's an odd thought to consider, but Hemingway's crushing obsession with meddling where he didn't belong, the very same impulse that screwed this drink up in the first place, might have also been the very thing that saved it. Hemingway did some of his best work while he was in Cuba. The Green Hills of Africa, the short happy life of Francis Macomber, and for whom the bell tolls were all supposedly written in that hotel room at Ambos Mundos, just up the road from where Constante plied his trade. And it was in Cuba that he finished the last major work of fiction that he'd lived long enough to publish, The Old Man and the Sea. It's a simple story, but it's powerful and personal, much less grandiose than some of his other works. There aren't any wars or love triangles or bullfights, just what the title promises. An old man trying to take something out of an elemental force that doesn't care if he lives or dies. It's a story told on a human scale, and because of that, and despite his characteristically terse prose, there's something almost intimate about it. It's short, too, but don't call it a novella. He'd kick your ass for that. And it's the book that finally, toward the end of his life, won him the Nobel Prize. Hemingway wrote a lot in his letters about the black lonelies that would follow him around in Havana. Even for a man who was constantly surrounded by fans and celebrities, it was clear that something was eating at him. For proof, look no further than the bizarrely morose speech he delivered in absentia to the committee in Stockholm. Writing, at its best, is a lonely life. Organizations for writers palliate the writer's loneliness, but I doubt if they improve his writing. He grows in public stature as he sheds his loneliness, and often his work deteriorates. Or he does his work alone. And if he is a good enough writer, he must face eternity. Or the lack of it. Each day. He was a man who craved the limelight, but was never filled by it. Driven by this relentless need for admiration that never quite topped him up. Maybe that's why he was so drawn to Constante, this quiet, intense man who needed none of that. This consummate professional who didn't require fame or praise or admiration. Hemingway didn't want to bask in Constante's glow the way others did or steal it the way some people have claimed. On some level, he must have wanted to be him. Famous writers have obsessed over bartenders in the same way that people in the movie business obsess over musicians. You know, it's everybody wants to be somebody else. Like, uh, you know, film directors and movie stars want to be the Rolling Stones. They want to be Mick Jagger or Keith Richards. And um, I think people like Ernest Hemingway or Graham Greene or, you know, any of the other famous uh, literary lions and lionesses who drank a lot, they all worship bartenders. And Constante in no small way benefited from that. He didn't fade into obscurity the way he could have. He's now, arguably, the patron saint of the daiquiri. 
His number three is on cocktail menus around the world, and yes, it's usually not the exact way he described it, and yes, most of the time it's called the Hemingway Daiquiri, but it's out there, in the world, being appreciated and quaffed. Look at this delicious update from Paul Clark's Cocktail Chronicles that is... You know what? I'm going to let Constante take this one. Take two ounces white rum, three quarters ounce of lime juice, a quarter ounce grapefruit juice, and a quarter ounce maraschino. Shake with ice and strain into a chilled cocktail glass and garnish with a lime wheel. They were very different men, the two of them. One a tortoise and the other a hare. One going at his own pace, the other chasing after everything in his path. And the bartender probably liked the writer because he liked his regulars and he liked his job and liking his regulars was his job. And the writer was probably jealous of him, maybe because he was a successful artist or maybe because the bartender had the ability that was so foreign to the writer of being content. Or maybe I've got it backwards and the bartender hated the writer for fucking up his masterpiece and the writer loved the bartender for treating him with kindness and getting him lit. Or both. Or neither. We'll never know for sure. But if you go into Bar La Florida today, you'll see two memorials to its most famous occupants. One is a tasteful oil painting of Constante placed lovingly on the wall next to all of his press clippings. And the other is a life-size bronze statue of Ernest Hemingway that receives a sacrificial daiquiri every day while it hogs his favorite seat for eternity. It's a fitting tribute, really, to the two of them and to who they were to each other. One of them is big, bold, shiny, perpetually the center of attention. And the other is a subdued work of art, calmly looking across the bar to keep an eye on the man who, for better and for worse, will always be his best regular. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. A big thank you to our amazing guests on this show, Philip Green and Jeff Beachbum Berry. Philip is the author of a couple books on Hemingway as imbiber, most recently A Drinkable Feast, which is incredible, and The Bum has written a number of amazing books and articles about rum, sugar, lime, and all the myriad ways that those can come together. He also runs an amazing bar called Latitude 29 that you should definitely check out the next time you're in New Orleans. And thanks, of course, to our amazing cast, Alejandro Ruiz as Constante and Colin Connor as Ernest Hemingway. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. 
Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Next time, we'll tackle an actual unsolved mystery behind one of the most iconic drinks of all time. Or at least some of the most iconic drinkware of all time. That's in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers.